let's go ahead and pray and then um, continue our study of First John. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it never turns back void. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. Thank you for your love for us, Lord. Um, just pray for those that couldn't make it today, that you would just uh, be with them in, in a great way, Lord, and uh, just ask God that, um, that we wouldn't miss out on what you want to speak to us today in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, Lord, help us to um, not just be hearers of your word, but be doers of it as well, Lord. Um, Father, if there's uh, things in our life, God, that you uh, bring to our minds even today through this study, Lord, may we just, um, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just help us to meditate on your word. Uh, just thank you for the children's ministry. Just ask that you'd have your hand upon them. And uh, just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're continuing through uh, the epistles of John. Um, first, the first, first, second, third John. First John's a, the longest one, has majority of the chapters, and then the other two, um, second and third, are short. <clears throat> And um, it's good to uh, kind of take a reminder. So um, John repeats himself a lot through the epistle here. Um, and um, he's driving a point home um, of painting really a very specific um, picture of what, what a Christian's life looks like and what the world looks like. Um, and it's... As, as a believer, <clears throat> and even as, you know, as a person who's a non-believer um, reading through this, um, you know, people who don't know the Lord read the Bible all the time, but you go and you start reading through this and you can appreciate um, the transparency that um, John, the way John writes about the different characteristics and what to look for. Um, one thing about God's Word is that it reveals the truth of who we are as human beings and who the world is and how we're supposed to be as believers. And so um, this portion of, of 1 John, it's really, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, all of God's Word is applicable to our life, but um, it's just really a, a good portion of Scripture to look at and learn what it really means for us to be a Christian. Um, we have to remember the context of John's writing. Um, here he, he's laying out the great in great detail, like I just mentioned, what a Christian's life is to look like in practical ways and not just in word only. It's easy for us to listen to a sermon or even read the Bible and literally walk away and not apply it to our life. Um, I'm guilty of that, and I'm sure all of us do that from time to time. And that's why it's important to be in the Word of God. And that's why um, at, at this fellowship here, that's why, you know, we go through, you know, line by line, verse by verse, book by book, um, so that we can hear the whole counsel of God's Word and apply it to our life. Um, and so... Um, I always think through that, like, do people understand? Because I, I, I watch some churches of different denominations, and a lot of times um, it's just um, a, a psychological dialogue about God's Word and not actually God's Word. 
And yes, the Lord can use people to speak into somebody's life. Um, you know, I'm sure you've experienced that before individually. Um, but my, even though the Holy Spirit lives in me, lives in you, um, God's word tells me that this is what's sharper than any two-edged sword and what discerns my thoughts and intents. Um, and so the Bible is alive and living, and that's why you'll always see us here have um, placed it in a supremacy in our worship, you know. Gina and I talk about, you know, how many worship songs we have and stuff like that. And, you know, we used to do, you know, four in the front and one in back. And I said, hey, let's shorten the worship setup um, so that, first of all, I don't feel pressured. And then second of all, so we give more room for the Word of God, you know. Um, if we don't leave room for the Word of God in our life, then we don't understand how to live as Christians. And I don't know about you, but when I spend time alone in the Word, like I just... My dad the other day is like, hey, read Nehemiah, because I was just thinking about being a leader, you know, with people. And the Lord really just ministered to me about the account of Nehemiah. Like, um, he, if you go through there and you read his prayer to the Lord, that, that even in the midst of the trial and situation he was in, he asked God to account the goodness that he did towards him. And in other words, there's this, there's this, um, there's this relationship that he had with God, and he's like, Lord, please remember the goodness of what, it, what went on, and may that be accounted to me between you and I, and I'm paraphrasing. And we saw the same thing in a couple of weeks ago where we read about, you know, where, 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 we, where I touched on John chapter 17, and Jesus talked about um, how close we are with, with God through Jesus, you know, that we are as one the same way Jesus is as one with the Father. And so um, it's important that we understand our relationship with God, our identity in Jesus is so, so, so important. But, you know, the, the, the church, you know, people say the church is in a place of like, it's not really alive and much. Well, really, it's an identity crisis, you know. Um, and we read here in 1 John, the mark of a believer is love, the love of the Lord, you know. And Jesus lived that. That was the commandment that Jesus lived. And so, um, just as we continue in through 1 John chapter 3 here, again, we have to remember that there was Gnostics that were preaching a false Christianity at the time, and that was the basis for this epistle. John wanted to, felt, you know, was led by the Holy Spirit to write this, this letter to the believers that were being um, pulled away, per se, by false Christianity. Um, and so we, for ourselves, we can look at this, and even though in this chapter there's going to be some repetitiveness of things that we already read in First and Second John, I mean, I'm sorry, in 1 John chapter 1 and 2, um, but again, it's, it, if, if the Holy Spirit allows the repetitiveness of it, then we need to really take account of, okay, we need to really understand what it means for us as human beings to live as Christians in a world that really is not, I mean, the, the spirit of Antichrist controls the world. The world will never be like, like, like Jesus. It'll never be like the church. The church is God's own special place um, we literally are the are, are the literal embodiment of Jesus. We are what his body's to. We are we are a representative of Jesus in public. That's what the body of Christ is about. It's not about a person standing here. It's about the the life of the Holy Spirit living through us, so that the world can see Jesus. And so I'm just kind of giving some base that we're gonna we're gonna read through some repetitive things of what we had already looked at in the other chapters of First John. Um, so, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, again, John's opening up, 
in a, in a very loving manner. Behold, what manner of love, this is amazing, listen, guys, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Um, what an amazing proclamation we see here. Behold, you know, or in other words, look at intently or see how much, how God has poured out upon to us his love in such a way that your identity and my identity is literally found in him. Everything else in the world, even in our own personal life, our sinful nature is always going to be against the identity that we are in Jesus. And so we see here that John just writes this amazing uh, opening statement, behold, what manner of love? In other words, the love that the Father has given to us in such a way that we could be called children of God. Um, you know, it's interesting to the point that we are called this love that, that, that the Father gives us through Jesus. We know that, that, that it's given to us in such a point that, that, that we are called um, God's children. Um, how much, my question is, came to mind, how much closer can you really get than somebody calling someone their child? I mean, you can't, much get, you can't get much closer than that, you know? That means like DNA, that means like the life, like, you know, there's this closeness, you know? Think of Maddie holding her baby, like this, there's this closeness that she has with her baby that John and her have with their new baby. And it's not any different than the closeness they have with their other children or like if you have kids, but there's this special bond that occurs between parents and their kids. And, 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 and so the Holy Spirit allowed John to write this likeness of what, that we are called the children of God. And so I want us to understand that you are a child of the Most High King. That's your identity. When you became a Christian, the old is gone and the new has come. And so we have to live in this identity. That's, that's the rub in our life, right? We get up and we wake up not with that thinking. I don't wake up with that thinking, you know? We need to wake up and say, Lord, here I am. I am your child. This is what the Bible says that I am as a Christian, so I'm going to live this way and believe this and trust that what you say I am is who I am. It's interesting, there's a fellowship that we have with God, one that the world does not understand and never will because it does not know him. The world has no fellowship with God. The Father, the Lord, it doesn't have any fellowship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Father doesn't have any fellowship. And, and so it doesn't know us. It doesn't understand Christianity. Um, there's this dividing line, once again, that John presents, the separation that a believer in Jesus Christ has from the world. Verse 2, he continues, Believe, uh, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, he sh we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, one day, what this verse is saying here, one day we will see God face to face. Um, we will have perfect bodies. This body that you have, this body I have, it will be gone. All of our ailments, all of our, everything that has to do with this fleshly nature, it will be gone. We will have a new body. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21 says this, for our citizen, listen you guys, for our citizenship is in heaven. That literally means that right now our citizenship is heavenly. It's in heaven. It's not here. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So we one day will have heavenly bodies. And so John's writing in verse two that although we're children of God, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, what we gain in heaven after we pass away or if Jesus comes back in the rapture, it hasn't happened yet, okay? What we shall be hasn't been revealed yet, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. What a promise. What a promise we have just in verse two and that we're gonna see him literally face to face. We shall see him as he is. In other words, truthful, honest, open, loving, full of light. We literally will see God face to face. Do you know that man can't be in the presence of God? Um, it's impossible because we have a, we're a sinful person. Um, God is perfect and sin can't be where he is in his presence. I always get Moses and Noah mixed up. Moses was put into a cleft of a rock when God, you know, came to him and spoke to him. And uh, even that is God's grace, the way that that happened with Moses, because God knew that Moses would have died if he was in his literal presence. So God passed by with his hand over the cleft and protected him just so he could barely see a glimpse of who God was. Verse 3 in John, 1 John chapter 3, and everyone who has this hope, the hope that we talked about in heaven, right? In him purifies himself just as he is pure. So believers in Jesus Christ, those that have the hope of seeing him face to face, lives their life in a way as to make provision for staying pure. This process of living a life in in this process of living a life in process of becoming more like Jesus and less like the world and our sinful nature. Not practicing sin, but practicing godliness. Not for the purpose of trying to look good, okay? But for the fact that one day we will be in the presence of God himself and we should want to be found by him, not ashamed, but found living our lives in a place of choosing things that are glorifying to him. We want to choose things that are glorifying him. We don't know the day that he comes. God's word says that he comes like a thief in the night. God's word paints this picture of being ready always for the return of Christ, always. There's the, the picture, and this isn't, I didn't write this down, but there's the picture of, of the virgins, the 10 virgins who are outside, right? And they're supposed to have their lamp full and their wicks trimmed. In other words, ready. And there were ones that weren't which means that there'll be people that aren't ready when Christ comes. And as Christians, our life is to be in process of becoming more like Jesus and less like the world, less like our sinful nature. Are we gonna mess up? Yes, absolutely. And that's why the grace and mercy of God is there. The grace and mercy of God is not there for us to continue. And the whole purpose for this isn't so that we can be like, oh, you know what? I'm such a great looking Christian. Look at me. It's so that when people look at our life, they see something different than what the world is. For whatever reason, God asked us as Christians through his word to be Christ-looking so that people would see Jesus. Yes, Jesus can 
do anything he wants. God can appear to anybody. He does in dreams. I've heard testimonies of that happening in that third world countries where the spirit of God enters into people's dreams and they wake up. I had a dream of who Jesus is and they're, they're Muslims and they give their life to the Lord. That's a reality. God can do anything. But, but biblically, he calls his church to be the physical representation, not of just like doing good works in people's lives, but so that our life isn't tainted by the world so that people are questioning, like, why, why do you not cuss anymore? You know, why, what cha- how come I don't hear you and your wife yelling and breaking things anymore? Why aren't you at the bar anymore? Uh, how come you're not smoking pot anymore? Uh, why, like, seriously, like, there's things that we have done in our lives. Why aren't you drinking anymore the way you used to? There's things that we would do in our life as, as, as either baby Christians learning or non-Christians, and people look at our life and they go, how come you're, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, like what's wrong? People get mad. We're going to talk about that later on in here. You know, and John, again, he's, he, he, this is such a loving letter that the Lord allowed him to write, giving such an example of how we're to live. And it should convict us. Like the question should be, Lord, am I... Am I really living, Lord, the way you want me to live as a Christian, the way your Bible tells me to? And it's impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit for us to do these things. It's impossible to love those that are unlovable. It's impossible to be forgiving when we want to be unforgiving. It's impossible. It's impossible to say you're right when everything inside of me says you're wrong and I don't like you. You know, those are impossibilities, you know, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives us the ability to do things that are impossible in our own strength. And all glory to him for it. It's amazing what Jesus gives us as Christians. Don't ever forget that the Lord is working in you, okay, for his will and his good pleasure. He's working in you. He's doing things in your life that you may not even know he's doing, and he's growing you as his child. He's taking care of you. He's, he's protecting you. He's providing for you. He loves you the way Maddie is holding her baby back there. She loves that baby. She will protect that baby from anything, okay? God looks at you the same way. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow John to write, in verse one, that we should be called children of God. There wouldn't be that correlation of us being God's child. Now, some of us may have issues with our children or issues with parents or whatever, but we're not God and they aren't God either. Verse four, John continues, says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So it's amazing here that, that, that John continues to draw this line in the sand. Verse four is a contrasting to verse three. In verse three, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John's saying, look, everyone who has the hope, who has Christ in him, they have a life that, that is in process purifying. There's that, that word purifying himself. God doesn't have to purify himself. Jesus doesn't. He's already pure. And where it says just as he is pure, it's not a correlation of Jesus needs to purify himself. Jesus is pure. He's gone. 
But verse 4 is contrasting to verse 3. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So we see here um, that those that live their lives in a way to where they are not living for God, they're in a life of sin and therefore a life of lawlessness. If sin is, if we can't call sin for what it is, then how can we see that righteousness is righteousness? Do you get what I'm saying? It's black and white. My sin is utterly sinful. It's not, well, maybe it's half sinful and half righteous. The word commit here in verse 4 means in Greek, the word is poet. Oh, I always mess these up. Poeio. Its literal meaning is the word does or doing. It's an action word. So in other words, living for oneself, not for God. Living for one's own will above God's will. That's the question for us. Lord, am I living for myself or am I living for you? And what does that look like in your life? That always has to be the question. That's my question with this ministry. That's my question with our family. God, what does it look like to serve you in all of us? What does it look like to help lead a ministry? What does it look like? What does it look like for you guys being here in this ministry to serve the Lord in the context of all of us and this church? What does that look like? What does it look like to serve the Lord in your house? Are you living for the will of God or are you living for your own will? Verse 5, and you know, John continues, and you know that he, being God or Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So Christ came to take away the sin of the world. That was the purpose of it, of him, not it. Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 6 says this. If you don't know Isaiah 53, spend a year reading it every day. It talks about who Jesus is and what he did for us. It's one of the most amazing pieces of scripture. You know, and this is totally a side note. People, you know, talk about, they, they have pictures of Jesus. I, I, this is me, okay, so don't get offended, please. He looks like Fabio, right? And he's chiseled and he's got this amazing look and everything. But in Isaiah 53, it says that he had nothing. He didn't look like anything that would cause us to desire him. He had a, he had a normal calmness. He probably honestly looked like a homeless person, okay? He had no place to sleep. He had no money, okay? So, so, so he came in the form of man in such a way that it would be only who he was as God that would draw people to him, not riches, not anything, nothing. But Isaiah 53, in this section here, we're talking about how, you know, uh, that he was manifest. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. By Jesus' stripes, you are healed. You're healed from sin. One day we will be in heaven healed from any ailments. That's who we are. It's what Jesus did. When John wrote this, and you know that he was manifested, the whole purpose for Jesus to walk on the earth was for the healing of mankind because there was a chasm too wide for man to get to God. He was our propitiation. He was our advocate. His whole life lived for intercession. He lives literally even now interceding at the right hand of the throne of God, praying for you and me. 
That's what he's doing literally right now, 24 hours a day. Of course, there's probably no hours in heaven. How much has God bestowed upon us in such a way? Why are we not living our life for him abandoned? That begs the question. I'm like, Lord, you've given so much to us in our relationship with you. Why do I make so many excuses? It's amazing what we gain. Isaiah 53, verse 6, it continues, says, all we, all, we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, being God, has laid upon him, being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Literally, your sin, your straying, your flesh, your ungodliness, Jesus wore that on the cross. He said to his father, Brian, I'm putting all of Brian's sin on me before you so that he is not condemned by you, Father. Put your name in the middle of that. John chapter 1, verse 29. And again, we're expounding on what 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 is pertaining to the manifestation of Christ in this earth uh, to take away our sins. And in, in, in him, there is no sin. He's sinless. John chapter 1, verse 29 says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world before Christ even went to the cross, the first moment in the scene when publicly recognized by his prophet John the Baptist, John proclaims by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus' purpose was to take away the sins of the world. There's no other except that. It's amazing what we gain in Jesus. Jesus needs to be the center of our life. We need to, Gene and I were talking about this yesterday. We need to always be preaching the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is that we have a sinful nature, that God sent his son to die for us, and that we are in desperate need of that savior. Every day I am in desperate need of the power of the Holy Spirit to fill me, to change my stupid thinking as a sinful person so that I'd be more like Jesus in my family, in my relationships, in the way I talk to people, it's so imperative as a believer. And I praise the Lord that he helps us through that. Man, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine the other day about some things. And he says, you know what? I just tell God, God, will you do the heavy lifting? Because I don't know how to do it. I'm like, that's amazing. I need to pray that all the time. Continuing to expand on this, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21 says this about Jesus. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him, he being God, made Jesus being him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Literally, Jesus became our sin on the cross. Think about that for a second. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Christ. Dear children, literally, the right, literally, this is telling me that in Jesus, I have become the righteousness of God. That in me, the righteousness of God dwells. How much of our life have we squandered away trying to be part of the world and then thinking that only partially being in Jesus? I have. I don't know about you. I don't think I'm on an island. And again, it goes back to what's my identity? 
Is my identity in what the Bible says I am? Or is my identity in my insecurities, my brokenness, my hurt, and all of my false expectations about every leader and every person in my life that has broken me and hurt me? Because Satan wants to use all of the hurt in my life to dictate who I am. And that's the stupid voice that's in my head all day long. That's why we have to memorize scripture and read it and abide in him, right? Again, that word abide. Thank you, Lord, for the transition. Verse six in 1 John chapter three, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now it's important for us to understand the context of what John is talking about here. He's talking about the 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 path of a Christian and the path of a non-Christian, okay? And so we can get in here, we can say, well, what do you mean? It says, him who does not sin, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Well, I, I'm a sinner. You just said we we're sinners, Brian. I don't get this. So a Christian, listen, cannot live in perpetual sin, okay? If they did, then they would be living in a way that denies what Christ accomplished for us. Do you get what it's saying? It's saying Whoever abides in him does not continually sin, does not perpetually sin. Their life is not marked by sin. They don't run with the way the world runs with things. In other words, those that live in sin have no evidence of seeing him or knowing him. That's where the second half of verse six is. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known, nor known him. In other words, a person who does not have Christ in them, their life is full of the way the world is, the way their flesh is. They desire only things of those. They have nothing having to do with God in their life. They might do good things, but as it pertains to a, a life that is working out their, their salvation with God with fear and trembling, it doesn't exist in a non-believer. It's just not there. So we can't really expect people to, to, to be working through that that don't know Jesus. Gina and I used to live in Midtown, Sacramento, for four and a half years. It's the homosexual capital of this part of California, okay? There's all sorts, I mean, bars galore, gay bars galore. We would, we'd walk around with Miranda in a stroller. That's just where we lived. And it just... I mean, my dad and I, we planted a church literally in a comedy bar, a comedy spot. Across the, street, across the street was the gay bar. To the right was another bar. To the left was another bar. You know, we, it, we're in the middle of just craziness. But as a Christian, you can't expect people to be different than what they are because it's only Jesus in us that makes the difference. We're to love, we're to have relationships with those that are non-believers. And, and, and so that they can see Jesus and we can't be critical towards them. Now, can we call their sin out for what it is? Like abortion, right? Absolutely. I'm, we'll, we'll, 40 days of, of life is on the wall. Please go stand in solidarity. If you wanna go do something, you don't have to say a word. Go stand for the Lord and for children. Um, you know, uh, the, the movement of the LGBT community pertaining to transgenderism in children, that's a big issue because it's literally wiping away what the identity is as human beings in Christ. God gives us platforms at different places to be able to speak boldly in those regards, but also gives us opportunity to love on people and to have friendship. Go have coffee with somebody. You know, obviously if it's an area of your life that 
is going to cause you to fall. Like when I started, you know, really rededicating my life to the, to the Lord, I couldn't go hang out with my drug dealer, you know, because I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm bad day, smoke a joint. Now it doesn't, I don't care. You know, God has me in a place in my life where that's not an issue anymore for me. So I'm not saying put yourself in a compromising position, but I'm saying leave room for the Lord in your life to be able to minister to those around you. And I brought up the thing of where Gina and I live because it's easy sometimes, I think, for Christians to be critical towards other people that may be messing up. And if they don't know, and even Christians who do know the Lord and have backslidden, you know, I don't know about you, but God sent believers in my life when I was backslidden randomly and prayed for me and said they saw demons in my, around me. And I don't know who these people were, but I was high at a park. God knew that I would be smoking a joint at a park and these two crazy Christian dudes would be playing a guitar at night and they came and prayed for me. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But God can work in every horrible circumstance in your life. He is able. It's funny, one of those guys, he was my best friend still even, one of my closest friends, Jesse. And we were roommates. And I'm sharing this with you because God wants to use you in people's lives even when their lives are messy. I don't know what that looks like in your guy's life. But as a Christian, he's called you to do that. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. See, the Gnostics at the time, they paid no attention to their lifestyle at all. They didn't care. And John is saying, um, don't be deceived by this. In other words, don't be deceived by the way the Gnostics are, are living their life. Excuse me. Um, John is placing great importance on the fact that the righteousness in a believer's life or the right living or godly living is because of their relationship with Christ. So we see here where it says, little children, let no one deceive you. In other words, don't, don't follow after the things that aren't godly. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. That's the goal for us to be Christ-like. It's a process. Verse eight, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I keep this thing as my, that's of the devil. I keep hearing that when I read this verse, it's like from some movie. Um, one commentator states this about verse eight, and I think this is important. Listen, you guys, some children, he gives a good ex example. Some children are so like their parents that you couldn't lose them in a crowd. That would be Nehemiah with me. This is true of God's children and of the devil's children. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Here again, the thought is, he who practices sin is of the devil. The devil has been sinning, continuous characteristic behavior from the very beginning. That is, from the first time that he did sin, he continued in it. All his children follow him in this broad way. It should be added here that men become children of God 
through the new birth. That's who we are in Christ. We are children of God. But there is no birth in connection with the children of the devil. A man becomes a child of the devil simply by imitating his behavior. But no one is begotten as a child of the devil. In contrast, the coming of the Lord Jesus was in order to destroy or annul or make useless the works of the devil. Christ stomped that out, man. That was in Genesis 3. It talked about that, that he would crush the head of the serpent, rendering him useless in a Christian's life. The word, the, the Lord could have, listen, you guys, the Lord could have destroyed the devil with a single word, but instead of that, he, being Jesus, came down to this world to suffer, bleed, and die that he might annul the works of the devil. If it costs the Savior so much to put away sin, what should be the attitude of those who have trusted in him as Savior? So it's amazing what, again, John's very specific about where these things come from in a person's life who isn't a believer. It's very specific, okay? It's light and dark. It's Jesus or no Jesus. It's you're either following after the enemy or you're following after Christ. There's no in-between. Verse nine, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed being Christ's or the Lord's, his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Again, this is, it's important to understand the context that John is drawing a line between the difference of a believer's life and the difference of a non-believer's life and that the Gnostics at the time were preaching a false doctrine. And so John, John is laying out some specific things here and, and, and the wording we can get caught up and say, well, is it, again, is this saying that a person who is a believer is not sinless? I can't live up to that. Well, of course we can't. But again, John is contrasting the facts here that a believer is regenerated. That's where it says that, that his seed remains in him, okay? The sinful nature was killed on the cross of Calvary. There is a new person that is created inside you and I when we decided to make Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of our life. This is not saying that we are sinless, but that the old man is gone and the new man is alive. The Christian does not live in perpetual sin. So again, John in verse nine, whoever has been born of God does not sin. In other words, because Christ is in you, you are not living in perpetual sin the way the world is, okay? For his seed remains in him. In other words, the Holy Spirit lives in you. It cannot, he cannot be taken away because that is a promise that the Lord gave you and only God can have authority over that. And God said that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. So why in the world would the Holy Spirit that dwells in you the day you come to know the Lord, why would he ever leave? Some people believe that that, that can happen, that you can lose your salvation. Well, then it's a false doctrine. It's a false gospel. It's a false Jesus. Because as far as I can tell in the Bible, I did nothing to earn my salvation. I just recognized that I was in desperate need of Jesus to change my life. I can't leave what I didn't create. I can't, I can't remove what wasn't put in me by my own strength, and neither can you. 
And we can have that hope and that reliance that, 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 that the Lord is always with us, even when we're scared, even when we're frightful. My son, our, my kids sometimes get scared at night, right? And Gina and I work really hard to pray with them and remind them that they need to pray and that they need to recognize that God is in their life, that even when they're afraid. What this verse is not saying in verse 9, it's not saying that we're sinless, but that the old man is gone and that the new man being the new Christ, the new creation is alive in us. The Christian does not live in perpetual sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are new, literal new. Again, there's that identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 continues, said, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our old nature, our sinful nature, literally is the, the bondage of it, the control of it, the drive of it. It was nailed to the cross and destroyed. And it's when we decide to go back to that vomit on the ground. Scripture talks about that. Like a dog goes to vomit. I know it's a gross picture, but my dogs will throw up and eat it. It's the nastiest thing. I would never do that. But when we decide to go sin, we literally are going back to that vomit. We are choosing to do those things. As a Christian, we have to mindfully go through a process and allow the temptation to build up in our mind and we play with the thought in our head and then we act out in it. We choose those things. And that's why John, the Holy Spirit allowed John, whoever has been born of God does not sin. In other words, we don't have that perpetual sin in our life anymore. We have to literally force that to happen. Now, there may be issues in your life that God is working through, right? That you can't get rid of, that you're dealing with. But if you are literally going before the Lord on a continual basis and have, and I'm gonna say this, have accountability in your life of the, of, of if you're a guy with guys and if you're a girl with girls and you're talking through this and you're praying through this and you're walking this out. I would almost venture to say that in that process, God will strengthen your trust and hope in him. My dad tells a story of when, you know, he saw a testimony and this gentleman who was a heroin addict got saved instantaneously become set free from heroin. That wasn't me and my drug addiction. Mine was horrible. I wish that that was my life. I don't know about you, but I look back though, and, and, and literally I see God's faithfulness in a way that is 100% against my own thinking and 100% in contrast to what I had the ability to do. And that, that glorifies the Lord. And it's by his grace that I'm alive. And it's by his grace that some of us in this room are alive because of his grace and mercy in our life. I wish everything was instantaneous. I wish that, the, that, that God would change things right away in my life sometimes. But you know what? Nine times out of 10, my struggle is because of me 
and not letting the Lord be God in my life. But it's amazing what we gain. This new creation. Verse 10. In this the children of God and the children in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Whoa, wait a minute here. There's that love. That's interesting, huh? There's no, in verse 10, there's no middle ground. God's children do not practice sin, and those that do practice sin are not of God. Therefore, they are of the devil. So in verse 10, there's this no middle ground statement, and then it's interesting at the end of verse 10 how John writes, nor is he who does not love his brother, okay? And we'll get into that a little bit more in this verse, and we touched on that in last chapter about Christ's example of loving others as the Old Testament talked about loving your brother, Jesus lived that out. And it was the first time that mankind had ever seen God living that out physically of what it meant to love the way the Old Testament depicted about loving others. So verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. So uh, in the, uh, I just touched on this in the latter part of verse 10. And here in verse 11, we see again, the hallmark of a Christian it's love. That's the hallmark. This is not, the lo not love of friendship or physical love. It is Christ-like love. Like what we had read about in 1 John 2, I touched on that, loving others, excuse me, the same way Christ loves us. He gave himself up for us all. Like, likewise, we are to love others sacrificially with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Again, like I'd mentioned last time, in our own strength, this is impossible. And like I touched on it already, this is where we see the truth of God's Holy Spirit working in and through a believer's life to love others the way Christ loves. When you really look at that and you really take it at face value, I don't know about you, but it's impossible, okay? It, it takes a reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And again, in the midst of that, the Lord's glorified. Verse 12, not as, listen, and, and this is interesting that John goes all the way back to the very first brother and the very first brothers. And he says, not to love as Cain, uh, verse 12 is, is a continuation, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Um, and, and so the Christians would have known this, this, this story um, they, 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 they grew up, that, that, you know, they, they, they would have known uh, the story of, of the Old Testament, what happened with Cain and Abel. But he, but he asked, and why did he murder him? And, and here's why. Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then there's that contrasting, sinfulness and godliness. So John brings up what happened with the first brothers of humanity, Cain and Abel. Go read in Genesis chapter four if you've never read the, con the, the account of, of, of their relationship. It's pretty bad, actually. But this is an example of how ungodly selfishness and jealousy becomes or turns into hatred, producing the worst things in us as human beings. That's why God takes it so seriously. That's why the Bible speaks over and over and over and over and over and over about loving others, about being selfless, not living the way the world does. 
And I, I don't know if you remember the account of Cain and Abel, and I'll try and paraphrase this, but, you know, um, uh, the, Cain, uh, you know, gathered uh, vegetables and, and Abel gathered a lamb and, and God said one was acceptable and one was not. And Cain got mad. And Cain killed his brother. And really, if you read the account, God started question. God gave Cain an opportunity. He asked him, why, why, why is this going on? I'm paraphrasing. You know, and even in the midst of that, God's grace, God has a relationship with, with him to dialogue with him about why, is it, why, why do you have this attitude, basically? But John's using the contrast of how we are not to be, that Cain, he, he was evil. He didn't want to follow what God's righteousness was. And John continues in verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, uh, if the world hates you. In other words, if we as Christians, and I touched on this already, if we as Christians look different than the world and they dislike who we are because our Christianity, that's, that's okay. It's okay, you guys. Um, it's okay. And that is how they will be. Um, so expect opposition when you start changing your life and those that you used to run with, and they could be in your own house. But those that you used to run with in the nightclubs or watching things you shouldn't or, or, or coarse joking or, or, or about things or one, you know, and, and one day they notice something different um, or that you stop hanging out with them or, and they become angry towards you. Don't be surprised at this. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18 through 19, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, identity. John is talking about identity. Jesus, when, when, about applying who we are, it's our identity in him. Verse 14 and 1 John 3, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Again, love, man. Love is so serious to God. Those that have become Christians, there is a difference in them now pertaining to other Christians. They love the brethren now. Um, I was listening to a testimony uh, when we went to the Gideon's um, appreciation dinner. Gina and I went to that. And there was a woman who gave a testimony. She was a traveling singer. She hated God. She hated Christians. She hated anything having to do with 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 God and, 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 and her life was falling apart and Gideon has Bibles in, you know, in the hotels. And so she reads it and, and she came to know Jesus there in the hotel room. And she said, you know, the crazy thing is I started loving people. And I thought, what is this? That's the Holy Spirit puts that in us. And John's writing about that. Those that have become Christians, there's a difference in them now pertaining to other Christians. They love the brethren now. The opposite of love is hatred. A professing Christian that does not love his brother or sister, um, the question is asked, were they ever really saved? And I'm not talking about dealing with anger or if somebody does you wrong and you have to work through what forgiveness is. If you're, that, that's a process. Um, but John's saying here, look, because we love the brethren, 
He who does not love his brother abides in death. He, again, drawing a line. We know that we have passed from death to life. In other words, um, we're, we're not living in that, that lifestyle that creates death. We've passed through that. Whoever hates his brother, verse 15, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, this paints the picture um, how serious this, this is to the Lord. Uh, this is not saying that those who have hatred in their hearts towards their brothers is guilty with the same exact consequence as one who murders a person. That's not what it's saying, because that'd be kind of weird. However, it is saying that God sees hatred in a person's life the same as a person that commits murder. So God sees this the same. In other words, it is very serious and God cares about this a lot and takes this extremely seriously. He, he looks at hatred very seriously and compares it to the same as murder, the hatred in a person's heart. So the scripture here is not saying that if you have hatred, you are guilty like a murderer who literally committed it. Remember the context of John's writing here, he's laying out in great detail what a Christian's life is to look like in practical ways. And in practice, this is, it, it looked like in practice. This is because of the Gnostics that were preaching a false Christianity. I opened up this sermon with this. The Holy Spirit is allowing John to write out such repetitive contrasts to what a Christian's life looks like and a non-Christian's life looks like. This letter being given to the believers at that time and now is given to us for us to be able to understand. God is very serious about hatred. And I ask you guys, if you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, you need to get right with that. It's very important, okay? And it starts with confessing that first. You confess to the Lord, I confess, I hate this person. It feels weird me even saying that, honestly. And then you say, Lord, will you please give me forgiveness for this person? I, I, I you know, I... I don't remember the address. You can look this up. But Jesus said that if you don't forgive others, he doesn't forgive us. I, I, it's a really interesting scripture. And I, and I think it's, the, 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 again, the seriousness that God has in a believer's life about being forgiving. Okay? And again, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit. Okay? There was a, a, a seriousness in my life once where I had very, very, very close friends of mine, family friends that really, 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 really hurt me. And I felt they all turned against me to where we had meetings and I felt like all of them were against me. And I was, I wanted to hurt somebody over it. This is a long time ago. And I praise the Lord for the, the for, for uh, listen, you guys, as a Christian, it's so important that you have a softened heart towards the Holy Spirit in your life, okay? Always leave room for God to work because when you stop letting room for God to work, it gets really, really bad. God is so smart. He'll let you fall apart as many times as it's needed for you to come to a place of letting him work in your life. And this season in my life, I'll never forget, I was on uh, the levee in West Sacramento, parked my car, and I'm just talking to God, and the Holy Spirit came upon me and said, Brian, you need to forgive these people the way I forgive you. And it was as clear as day. And I was like, uh, 
And it wasn't like, if you feel good, or if they treat you right, or if they, you know, you know, lick your wounds for you because you're hurt. It had nothing to do with that. It was the Lord telling me that I needed to be forgiving. And it had nothing to do with them. It had to do with me as a Christian and my God who's greater than me, placing the reality of what he expected of me as a believer. In spite of my hatred, in spite of my sin, in spite of my hurt. And it sucked. Because everything inside of me wanted to be mad. I had every right to be mad. Okay? I had every right to go to somebody and punch them in the face. Was that what was the right thing to do? No. No. And our anger will take us to a place sometimes where we do things that are ungodly. And God's word over and over and over and over and over talks about these things. And John is painting this picture of where it comes from, that it comes from the enemy. And that as a Christian, we are to act differently. And when we don't know how to act differently, we're to make sure that we invite the Lord in the middle of our hurt and for us to not be around those people until we're okay. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And it took years for me to feel okay with these people. I don't have bitterness toward them. But I knew that day that God asked me, not asked me, told me as his kid, Brian, you need to forgive the way I forgive. And because see, one day you and I are going to stand before Jesus one day and we'll be held accountable as Christians of how we lived our life. John talks about in here about lip service that we're to be doers of the word. And again, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know this is seriousness. And I'm being very serious about this because this is, this is the reality of where the rubber meets the road in our life. God's all about relationships with human beings, okay? He created us for relationships with people. And the enemy knows how to remove those things. And the enemy knows how to destroy those things. And our flesh loves being hateful. I loved being angry about this situation because it appeased my hurt. But I haven't hurt to the depth that Jesus has hurt. So be forgiving. And if you can't, then allow, the, allow room for the Holy Spirit to move that in your life. He's faithful. I'll never forget that day on that levee. I was filled with anger and hate and hurt. And the Lord said, Brian, you need to do this. You need to forgive as I forgive. And that scripture was true in my life. I don't know what it was, man, but I, you know, if you're not forgiving, I'm not forgiving to you. It's like a seriousness. I'm paraphrasing that. I don't remember where the address is in there, but I know it's in the Bible that Jesus correlates that. And I don't know why, but I think it's from when we get in this mode of where I was at, that there's no gray area. We're required to be forgiving the way Christ is. So I find it fascinating how in the whole contrast of sin and, and righteousness and all these things, and the Holy Spirit throws that brotherly love. Matthew 6, 15. 
Thank you. It's the joys of a small church. I'll read verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. In other words, God takes it seriously. And you may be in that place in your life today. I don't know why I'm, I'm heavy on that subject because that's not in my notes. But there's freedom when, we, when, the, when the Lord washes over us and gives us that ability to be forgiving. Don't let bitterness and hatred rule your life. It will, if you let it. Let the Holy Spirit rule your life. Verse 16, John continues, it says this. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's saying here, Jesus gave all of us the example of what love looks like, and we're to love others in the same way. We're to lay our lives down for the brethren, for others. It's real practical, actually. Um, verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods, and this is really fascinating, whoever has this world's goods, and it's in context to, to loving others, whoever has this, this world's goods, in other words, resources, money, you know, the things of the world, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so I like that about God's word. He's, he, again, wh where's the tangible evidence that God is really in your life working? In other words, don't be selfish, be giving, look, look for opportunities to give of the resources that God has given to you. Verse 18 and 19, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't be a poser. Don't have lip service. Don't act like you hear God's word and then have no tangible evidence in your life. Verse 19, and by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. In other words, our lives need to be marked by actively loving others in our actions, not in our words or having just lip service that is empty of substance. May our lives be marked by actions of loving others the way Christ loves us and marked by the truth of God in our lives. This Christ-like love is evidence that, that the truth of God is in us, giving us assurance in the presence of God. It's amazing that, that, that verse 19, and by this we know that we are of the truth because of our actions that we're not giving lip service. And then we have assurance in our hearts before God himself because there's evidence in our life of God working. Verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, I love this, you guys, listen. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. In other words, the Holy Spirit it's, it's amazing. The Holy Spirit gives John insight into the human condition of self-condemnation. Personally, me personally, I know who I am, okay? I, this sinful person, I know who I am. You know who you are. You know your sinful nature because it's, we just, unless we're blind to it or we don't know the Lord, 
but I know who I am. And, and as I continue to walk out my relationship with Jesus Christ on a daily basis, I am faced even more with the fact that I am helpless in my condition without Jesus Christ. This great perfectness of the perfect God, Jesus Christ, and my great sinfulness, although taken care of on the cross, and I know this to be fact that it was taken care of on the cross, that I am saved, and that the power of sin and death was done away with on the cross, that Jesus Christ literally shed his blood for you and for me. I know this to be true for myself, but I can sometimes find myself, and I don't know about you, maybe you do as well, but I can sometimes find myself in a place of thinking myself to be condemned because of my sinful nature, because of my shortcomings, because of my stupid mouth, because I'm a reactive person, whatever label you put on there. But God, I love this, verse 20, God is greater than this condemnation that we place upon ourselves. He sees this in all of you and, and me that, that have called upon his name as well. He sees the righteousness of him. He knows who he is. He knows who is in, he, he I'm sorry, I messed up on my notes. God is greater than this, this condemnation that we feel or that I might feel. He knows who is in my heart. He knows and sees himself in me. He sees his righteousness in you, okay? He sees his righteousness in me. He sees this in all of you that have called upon his name. And if there is sin we have committed, we are able to pray, confessing our sins to him, and he is faithful to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. And if you do not know him today, today is your day to be set free. For verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, if who we are inside says, God, I, I, I've gone too far. I love that. The Holy Spirit allowed John to write, God is greater than your heart. And he even knows all these things in you. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. In other words, we have confidence towards God, not in our own abilities, but in the fact that we stand forgiven. Our confidence is in the fact that we stand forgiven before the Lord. Romans 8, verse chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says this, there is therefore now, can you guys read this with me? It's so powerful to read this together. I don't want to be the only voice here, please. Will you guys read this? I know it's on the screen. Will you read Romans 8, verse 1 through 2 with me? Are you ready? 1, 2, 3, let's go. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit is of life. It must have skipped. Verse In Christ Jesus, you and I are set free from condemnation. It's a done deal. That's why John wrote here in verse 21, beloved, our heart does not condemn us. We have confidence towards God because of his work in our life, because of his work on the cross. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Some people take this verse out of context and say, you can ask God for whatever he wants because you're his kid and he's gonna give it to you. Well, that's a bunch of garbage, okay? Commentator William McDonald writes this, to keep his commandments is to abide in him. It is to live in close, vital intimacy with the Savior. When we are thus in fellowship with him, abiding with him, we make his will our own. There's an outcome that happens in our life. By the Holy Spirit, he fills us with the knowledge of his will in such a condition 
that we would ask not of anything outside of the will of him. When we ask according to his will, we receive from him the things we ask for. In other words, as our life is abiding in God, he starts changing what we ask for and we start praying pertaining to the will of of him in our life and he grants us the things of his will in our life. It's not us because of our relationship with him as his children we can ask God, like I want a Rolls Royce. I mean, come on. You know, some people is, oh, God, fill my wallet, make it fat and happy. That's so stupid. <laughs> God, fill my life that I would be an example to my neighbors. The other day, I told my neighbor, you know what? I really, I really appreciate you. And my neighbor was stupefied. I'm not kidding. They looked at me like, what are you saying to me? And I said, you're a good neighbor. I appreciate you guys. She didn't know what to do. And you know what that tells me? That she doesn't feel like she's a good person or a good neighbor to others. You know? Maybe you're the only person in your neighbor's life that that can be loving. I don't know. I didn't do anything great. I just said, I appreciate you. You're a great neighbor. I think she almost fell down. I don't know why I came up with that. I don't know why I was sharing that context. The love of Christ being in us. I'm not always like that, though. But be willing for those opportunities. Verse 23 and 24, and we'll close. And this is his commandment. John continues, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. It's like, it's the gospel. Our first task before any others is to believe in the name of Jesus, trusting in his work on the cross, that he died for our sins, was buried for three days, and physically rose from the dead on the third day, fulfilling God's requirement for your sins and for mine, taking our place literally so that we would not have to die in our sins. That's the first place. That's the, that's the, that's, and, and, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the son, of his son, Jesus Christ. That's number one. Then the second part, and the second commandment is for us to love one another the way Christ does. Verse 24, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So verse 24 shows that the person that keeps the Lord's commandments, in other words, abides in him. Remember that, that, that abiding like a branch being connected to a tree, if it's broken off, it, it has no life. So we need to abide in him. This person is directly connected with Jesus Christ. A believer knows with confidence that the Lord abides in him because of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment and leads and guides us into all truth. So in verse 24, we who keep his commandments abide, we abide in him and he in, and, and, and he in him, uh, he being uh, the Lord, in him being the person. And by this, we know that he being God abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. So there's this direct communion that we have with God and it's by his Holy Spirit that we know that we have that. 
And so it's amazing what God gives us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for uh, the chapter in John, 1 John 3. And I just ask, Lord, that you would continue to move in our life. And uh, as we close with this song, Lord, that uh, things that maybe uh, you brought up by your spirit through your word um, today, that we would just um, have a moment of just uh, uh, in prayer, Lord, at your feet. Um, Just thank you. And may you be blessed by our lives, Lord. Um, May we uh, be able to hear from you. Uh, May we go forth from this place um, knowing you more and being encouraged, God, to live for you, God, in a way that is unashamed so that the world would see the need they have for Jesus. Just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.